Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 61. Isaiah 61. So the plan is, uh, for those of you who have been here regularly, for us to work through uh, the last few chapters of this book, ending uh, the Sunday after the Labor Day weekend, and then for our most exciting kickoff Sunday on September 15th, we're going to start a new series. So we're going to try to finish Isaiah by then, and Lord willing, we will. And with a reminder, as you read Isaiah 61, that this is the Word of God. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches, you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them, Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll walk through this text together. Our Father, we would ask that uh, in your grace you would help us to understand your word. Uh, We come here on this uh, beautiful August morning uh, longing to know you better. We ask that you will forgive us for our sin, uh, which are many. We ask that you will uh, even reveal to us, help us to see things in our lives, uh, whether our words or deeds or attitudes or thoughts that are displeasing to you. Help us to see them. And by your Spirit, uh, 
through Christ bring us forgiveness for those things, but also we pray that you will purify us from them. We pray that you will make us truly a holy people. We pray, Lord, that uh, you will uh, engage even this morning in our lives in a subjective way uh, with this great exchange. If there are those who are in despair or mourning, we pray that you will give them a full measure of the joy of their salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray that you will enable us to, to feel what it is to be clothed in your righteousness, to be arrayed in your glory. And Father, we also pray that in the same way as we See, at this time of year, uh, lots of growth uh, in, in the plant kingdom. We pray that you will cause righteousness to spring up in our midst. Uh, we pray that you will cause praise to grow. We pray that we will be a people of righteousness who praise your name, that the world will see how wonderful you are and how great our Savior is. We ask these things in his holy name. Amen. Now, a lot of you will, of course, recognize that the opening words of this text are later on used by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, sort of providing some self-identity of who he is and giving a reference point for his ministry. Uh, I'm going to be talking about that at the end. Uh, It's important to understand what Isaiah is revealing here in his own context before we move quite that quickly to the New Testament. So what you have here is the last of the servant, it's not a servant song, but it's the last of the appearances of the servant of the Lord. And so when you read this, it's the servant speaking. And you're not supposed to forget everything that you've been told already in Isaiah about the servant of the Lord, the one who is not merely the nation of Israel, but the one who is the epitome of Israel-ness, that is the firstborn son of God called to be a light to the world, to reveal the glory of God. And where Israel fails, the servant always succeeds. Uh, The servant you will recall, actually has a ministry to Israel. He gathers Israel back to the Lord. And then you have that culminating uh, passage in 52.13 through 53.12, where you have the atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, the servant led like a lamb to the slaughter. He sheds his blood. And even though he is cut off from the land of the living, even though he dies, he is, will also prolong his days. He will also see his spiritual offspring. He will live again. And so we read this, and, and frankly, in Isaiah's day, it would have been awfully tough to start to sort it out. You, you, you trust in the promises of God. You, you, you believe in the Word of God, and yet you, you can't really seem to figure out how this is all going to align. It doesn't make any sense. Well, when we come to Jesus Christ, we see how all of these elements align. Perfection and sad rejection by people. Uh, just, just a... Reminder that sometimes perfect things can be rejected in this world. Uh, Good things can be rejected by evil people and and often are. And so you have this this perfection and rejection and scorn and shameful treatment, mockery, beating, derision, even painful death, yet triumph and inheritance and glory and offspring in seeing your days. Of course, you come to that with Jesus and with Jesus alone, someone who, who fulfills all of those various elements who can hold them all together in a beautiful way. Now, here you have a ministry of the servant. 
The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. So the mark of the servant's ministry is that he is filled by the spirit. Now, interestingly enough, uh, in Luke's gospel especially, there's an accent placed on how it is the Holy Spirit who fills, leads, guides, and empowers Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. So the servant of the Lord is someone who is filled and led by the spirit of the sovereign Lord. And how do you know? This is perhaps a mark for us today in a lower sense. Obviously, we're not Jesus, but one of the marks of being filled by the Spirit of God is this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. In the book of Acts, Whenever someone is filled by the Spirit, we talk about being filled by the Spirit at different times, different, different uh, sort of church traditions understand this in, in a variety of ways. Uh, I just want to insist on one thing just off to the side. Uh, every Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit. That happens at conversion. That's once for all. In fact, for all of the talk in churches, in, in certain church circles, about being baptized by the Spirit, the amazing thing is that phrase, a reference to baptism in the Spirit, is only used four times in the entire New Testament, three of which are synoptic gospel parallels talking about the exact same thing, which is involving the Spirit in Jesus at His baptism. So you only have one reference to Spirit baptism in all of the New Testament that has anything to do with Christians. And it's that we were all baptized into one spirit. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And so there's no doubt that in terms of New Testament material, there is one baptism in the spirit. It's once for all that happens at the moment of conversion. There is no Christian who is not baptized by the spirit. However, the book of Acts makes it very clear that Christians are more or less filled by the spirit at different times. Okay? We just want to keep our vocabulary straight. In the book of Acts, every time someone is filled by the Spirit, it is always for the purpose of boldly testifying in the name of Jesus. It is not something which just sort of makes you feel good. Uh, The filling of the Spirit is actually not for you. It is for the witness of the gospel. The book of Acts, every time, you can look it up, every time someone is filled by the Spirit is to proclaim boldly the message of the gospel. And here, it's the Spirit of the Lord anoints the servant to proclaim the good news to the poor. Now, that lines up with all of the social justice issues we've seen in Isaiah up until this time, that there is a very real concern in God's heart for the weak and the marginalized and the downtrodden, those who are pushed to the periphery of society, those who are trampled down. Now, fascinatingly, uh, so often in the era of the prophets, the rich are exploiting the poor and are actually growing rich because they're robbing the poor and then bribing judges in in lawsuits and law courts, that the poor almost become synonymous with the righteous throughout the era of the prophets. Uh, So we don't want to just merely insist that somehow, you know, if you don't have much money, then God favors you over someone who has a lot of money. That's not what's in view here at all. But rather, it's this understanding that the heart of God is not moved by sort of uh, material possession, power, authority. Today, we could add things like education, whatever the social markers of our, uh, our uh, whatever the social markers are in our society. God doesn't care about those things a bit. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord moves people to proclaim the gospel to everyone indiscriminately, and those especially who are broken and who may respond to it because of their brokenness. 
Because they, they see the difference. They're not looking for a sort of fulfillment in material provision. They're not looking for fulfillment in, in their own self-esteem and, and growth up the ladder and whatever that ladder is that they're trying to climb. And so the Spirit of the Lord anoints the servant to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's a ministry to the broken to proclaim freedom for the captives to release from darkness and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and so the servant has this great task to come into a society where people are broken and hurting and downtrodden and, and to heal them and to release them. And that's what the good news is. The good news is because there's been a redemption price paid, you've gone through Isaiah 52 through 53 before you get here, that precisely because there's been a redemption price paid, people can be liberated. The servant can proclaim to them the good news that now there is freedom. Now they don't need to stay in chains. They can, be, they can come out. They can come out from the darkness into the light. That's offered to them freely because of what he himself has done. This is the year of the Lord's favor because of what the servant has accomplished. And because he's accomplished it, he can proclaim it. Now it is also important to note that the year of the Lord's favor is also the day of vengeance of our God. That's in there too. How can that be? The reality is, even today, and we could, we could cite specific examples of cases, but we won't, we know that you cannot properly have a matter settled unless the innocent have their innocence proclaimed and the guilty receive justice. So the day of vengeance is the day when God makes everything right. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance have to go together. That is, for everyone who will acknowledge that they are in the wrong, for everyone who is genuinely repentant, the appearing of the Lord is a day of the Lord's favor. It's a day when finally evil is put away. It's a day when the accounts are finally settled. It's a day when they enter into the fullness of the atoning sacrifice of the servant of the Lord on their behalf, when their guilt is finally taken away. I think all the way back to Isaiah 6, where that coal from the burning altar is flown over by the seraphim, the flashing one. This coal has touched your lips, symbolic of judgment and purification and substitutionary atonement taken from that altar. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And you enter into the fullness of that experience on the day of God's favor. It's the day of blessing because sin is finally put away. But for those who persist to the end with everything that they are in rebellion against God, it's also the day when their power will be circumscribed. It's also the day when their, their rebellion and their ability to harm others is brought to an end. And so for the righteous, for those who pursue God, this is the greatest blessing there is, to be removed finally from an atmosphere of violence, from an atmosphere of unrighteousness and ungodliness and unwickedness. To have every threat put away forever. 
There, can't, there couldn't be anything better than that. To live in the presence of God with absolute safety from all wrongdoing. And perhaps the greatest blessing there is not finally to be done with all the external causes of wrongdoing, all the external threats, but to finally be done with the internal source of wrongdoing in your own heart. Finally, God deals with you in in that climactic way, saved never to sin again, saved to be pure as Christ is pure to in every way love God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength, and in so doing find that you cannot help but love your neighbor as yourself. That's the day of God's favor. That's the great day of blessing from our God. It's also a day of vengeance. It has to be in terms of judgment for those who will not repent. That little phrase, though, is the only one you get like this in the entire text. To comfort all who mourn. This reminds you of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And it's not just people who are sad. It's people who are mourning contextually in the Beatitudes. You know, they're the same people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Well, why are they mourning? Well, they're mourning because their heart's sick when they look at all of, all of the ways that evil manifests itself around them and inside of them. This is actually not, not to be morbid, not to be spiritually morbid because we can be spiritually melancholy too uh, in an unhealthy way. We can be too introspective for our own good sometimes, especially if we don't have, if we have grace for everyone else but not for ourselves. Um, but the reality is, if you look inside of yourself and you look at the world around you, there's an awful lot to mourn over when it comes to sin. If you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness, the promise is you will be filled. If you're mourning, you will be comforted. Because what Jesus is doing is He is creating again for those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He will make you righteous. He will fill you with that. And when you get to you know, the language in Second Peter, that He is also creating a new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness, or where righteousness dwells, all of a sudden you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're filled by it, and He puts you in the environment of righteousness. You're surrounded by it. And there couldn't be anything better than that. And so currently, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness but are painfully aware of the, of the sin that is inside of you and also the horror of some of the things that take place in the world around us, there is mourning, and rightly so. Just like that baby back there is mourning about something or other. You know, it, it, the reality is that in this world there are things that are worth mourning over. And it is blindness or spiritual tone deafness which keeps the Western church as apathetic as we are. That's all there is to it. there, There are things that are worth crying about. There are things that are worth grieving over. Frankly, if there aren't, then this life really isn't worth living. There has to be something in this world big enough to care about. Or what's the point anyway? And so, there are opportunities to have the heights of joy. Yes, there are. There are opportunities to be, to be just ecstatically happy. But if you know anything about the world, if you know anything about people, if you have any degree of empathy at all, any spiritual sensitivity, then there are things that must be shattering to your heart. Just look around. Just look around at life. But the servant says, oh, you mourn now. 
but I will comfort you. There's comfort coming. I will provide for those who grieve in Zion. I will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And here you get these, these three beautiful contrasts. Beauty for ashes. You know, that, that's what you bring to God. What you have is, is the anguish of, of, of everything burned down to a cinder. And you bring those ashes. Now, of course, this is also um, contextually and culturally uh, signs of mourning. That is, you know, we, we even today, we'll talk about repenting or, or mourning in sackcloth and ashes. And so the, the idea here, it's almost like you're, you're going to exchange your funeral garments, you know, for, for your party clothes, you know, whatever those happen to be, uh, don't tell me. Uh, you, 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 you have your, your sackcloth and ashes on, and, and you come in the presence of the king, and he says, no, 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 not anymore. That was appropriate at certain times, but not now. Let me take away all of your signs and symbols of mourning and give you a crown of beauty. You are royalty and beautiful. The oil of joy instead of mourning. So beauty for ashes, joy for mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. All those burned down, broken dreams, God gives you beauty in their place. He crowns you. All those tears, all that mourning, put away. Joy given in its place. And where you once, because of the ashes and because of the mourning, where you were once in despair in your spirit, He changes your despair to praise. He allows you to remove your eyes sometimes from the very limited horizon that you can see, the, the, the very limited perspective and point of view that you have, where you can only see, you know, sometimes even just barely one foot in front of you, you can only see certain people, certain things, God removes that from you, He, he, he expands your vision so you can see in proper context who He is and a little bit, hopefully, of what He's doing. And where you had despair, now you have praise. You will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. This is very much like Psalm 1. You, know, you, you meditate on the, on the Word of God and you grow, and all of a sudden you are like a tree planted by a, a living, fresh source of water. You yield your fruit in season. Your leaf does not wither. Whatever you do prospers. That's you, an oak of righteousness. You know, the oaks of Lebanon, the oaks of Bashan, the greatest trees that they knew back in this time. And so to be an oak tree, you know, to be that strong, rooted, and, and healthy, it would be an incredible thing. Not so the wicked, someone they are like the chaff that the wind blows away. And that's your contrast. You will either be like chaff ephemeral here today and blown away by wind tomorrow, or you will be a long-standing oak of righteousness, stable and solid in the sight of God. A planting of the Lord. Why? Why would God do this for you? Why would God give you, you know, beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise for despair? Why would He make you an oak of righteousness? It's because in strengthening you, He displays His splendor. In doing something in you that can't be explained except by His hand at work, He does something which reveals His power and strength, not only to you, but to other people as well. 
uh, to a point where, I don't, I don't want to push the, the bounds of the imagery of the metaphor too far, but to the point where, you know, as, as, as a mighty oak in a, sun, in a sun-scorched land, you can also provide shade for others. God can make you so strong that your, your branches can embrace other people and help them too. God does work in you for you. He does. But He also does work in you for others. And He does work in you for Himself, too, for the display of His splendor, so more people will come to know who He is. Then you will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This is talking about exile. But again, we, we, saw, we talked about this a little bit last week, actually, so I'll, I'll hasten on. But, but what a beautiful image here is no matter how much decay and destruction there has been, God can use people to rebuild and restore. And, and that's what you want to be. We're mixing metaphors here, but, but you want to be an, an oak of righteousness that rebuilds the city. Yeah, maybe this is where, you, you, for those of you who, who like Tolkien, you can think of uh, the Ents, you know, the, those, those tree-like creatures that can actually move and do things. Remember, they, they tear down Isengard. Well, here, the Ents, those oak-like beings, are, are moving around, but they're not tearing anything down. They're building. They're, they're rebuilding. They're rebuilding the city, even if it's lay in waste for generations. And frankly, at this point in history, this is becoming about the only hope for our nation there is. For a couple generations now, the moral and spiritual infrastructure of our nation has been deteriorating and is now willfully being vandalized and torn down. And we desperately need people who are anointed by the Spirit of God to rebuild. Now, that actually requires going into the city. That requires actually understanding culture. That requires understanding that today you can ask someone if they believe in God, and they may say yes. And their definition of God is so wildly different from anything the Bible says that you're talking a totally foreign language. It, it requires understanding that in a lot of places, to identify yourself as a Christian, particularly in sort of in, in academic situations, to identify yourself as a Christian today does not in anyone's mind, even those who have degrees anymore, it, it does not evoke any theological content whatsoever. So they don't say, oh, well, then, you know, I'm an evangelical Christian. They don't think, well, then, you must have, you know, some sort of view of the infallibility of Scripture. Or, interesting, you must hold to the, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Or, oh, you must be one of those people who believe in the Trinity. None of those things are, are on anyone's horizon. What they hear is, oh, uh, you're a homophobic bigot. You're the one who's trying to pull things back to the Dark Ages. You're the one who's, who's creating and fomenting discord in our society. People like you are the reason that Donald Trump's president. That's what they hear. That's what they hear. We need to not circle the wagons and hunker down in our churches and pretend the world doesn't exist. We need to engage the city We need to learn to take every thought captive to Christ, and we need to go into the world in whatever domain or sphere you are in, and you need to work to rebuild 
And part of that comes from proclaiming the good news to the poor. Part of that comes from doing your part to not let things be torn down anymore by speaking up for justice and trusting that God will work in such a way that He'll be pleased to use your efforts to make a difference. You will rebuild ancient ruins. You will renew the ruined cities, even if it's been a long time, devastated for generations. This is our prayer. God, we need a revival in our church. We need to wake up. We need a great revival and awakening in our society, too. God's done it in the past. We desperately need that today. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. Uh, this is uh, sort of a culturally, uh, you know, a, a picture uh, of you rising to a place of dominance and power. You will be called priests of the Lord and be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, Adam Smith, and in their riches you will boast. In other words, you get everything, but it's all mediated to God. It's all mediated to God. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. Exile was a disgrace to the people. The, the, the tearing down of the city was a disgrace to the people. The ruin of the temple was a disgrace to the people. And yet here God is saying, no matter how much shame you have experienced, even because of your own sin which brought it about, I'm going to give you a double portion. I am going to take away. Your shame was real. We don't, we don't do ourselves any favor psychologically when we minimize and deny and excuse away guilt and shame. We don't, help, we don't do ourselves any favors at all. What we need to do is we need to, we need to address it directly. We need to accept it, and then we need to ask ourselves, and then we need to, to open ourselves to receive the mercy and grace of God and ask Him for it, to ask Him for forgiveness for things that really were wrong, th- things that we really ought not to have done, ought not to have said, ought not to have thought or felt, things which have legitimately and justifiably brought about ruin, and then to find that God is not one who destroys people who will acknowledge their faults. Rather, he is one who forgives them and mercy strengthens them and then uses them to rebuild other lives. And so we come to God. Our shame is real. Our disgrace was real. But again, in a great exchange, he takes that, just like he takes away the, the mourning and the ashes and the despair. He takes it all away. And gives us beauty and joy and praise and a double portion and everlasting joy. That's joy that never ends. Shame is a moment. Guilt is a moment. The despair is a moment, even though I, I, I know it can feel like forever. But it's not. Forever is reserved for love. Forever is reserved for joy that never ends. These other things loom so large in our horizon, but our horizon is so small and temporal in this world. Why will God do this? For I, the Lord, love justice. I am going to make things right. I hate robbery and wrongdoing which means if you are like God, there are things that you ought to hate too. 
want to be really careful here. Another thing that identifying yourself as an evangelical Christian means in the world today is that you are filled with hate for a variety of things. That caricature is sadly true in, in places and in part. It's not hard to, fill, to find a hate-mongering, hate-filled evangelical. It's not. The problem is all of the ones who aren't like that are conveniently ignored by all of the media. So often we hate the wrong things and fail to hate the things we should hate. So often we end up hating people rather than hating wickedness. But there are things in this world you should hate. I, I, won't, I won't enumerate them. But again, just, just look around. And if there are things that you do not hate with all of your heart, if there are things that, that, that do not make you sick to your stomach, if there are things that you would not do anything to eliminate, then you're not like God at those points. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people. Rewards are always based on grace, not merit, but God does reward His people. I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people that the Lord has blessed. And again, this is, this is also a, a mark of a sort of a diagnostic of spiritual health. Do you want to be blessed by God for the convenience of your own life? Well, well, inescapably, yes. Let's be honest. None of us are so utterly sort of able to step outside of self and ego that we don't care about our own comfort and, and desires. We, we just can't be that way. It's, not, it's just not possible. Let's not pretend otherwise. So, yes, we want to be blessed for ourselves. However... That doesn't need to be the only motivation or even the primary one. We don't need to be in a position where we can pretend to be so unconcerned with self that we're utterly indifferent to our circumstances. But what we can do is we actually can be so oriented to God that, yes, of course we want to be blessed. That goes without saying. But we want to be blessed so that other people will see what it looks like to be blessed by the Lord. That is, we want to be blessed not only in reference to our own desires, but in reference to how we can see sort of concentric circles or, or radiating ripples from the pond. You know, God throws the stone of blessing into the pond, and, and, and all of those ripples move out, affecting so many lives. And you can get there. You can get to a place where that is your desire. You want to be blessed so other people can see you and acknowledge that you are a people blessed by God. That they can see the hand of God at work in you in a variety of ways. This is something which we ought to do. All the world will look and acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Now, what's the response? The response of the prophet is this, I delight greatly in the Lord and my soul rejoices in my God. In other words, the joy is already starting to flow in. The, the garment of, or the, the spirit of despair already being put off, the spirit of, of praise being put in its place. I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. 
and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In other words, this is like coming into a right relationship with God and being under the hand of the blessing of God is like preparing yourself for the most beautiful wedding ceremony. The, the, the garments God gives you, his robe of righteousness, is received with sort of a, a spiritual eye to a beauty that's greater than the bridegroom feels on his wedding day and the bride feels adorned in her finest splendor. What God gives you is more. What God gives you is actually better than the finest of earthly fashion, the, most, the, the great excitement and anticipation of earthly events. What God gives you is better, arrayed in a robe of His righteousness. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. Now, I will spare you all of my various reflections on fashion this morning. I will. I provide you with some of them in the past. I will simply mention this. Pardon, Jake? No, I heard something. We all know what your opinions on fashion are. <laughs> well, then you are a blessed people. I will simply mention this without commentary. This shirt and this pair of pants is 20, they are both 20 years old. I am 40 years old. This isn't a commentary on fashion, this is a commentary on my own ego. I'm quite happy I can still fit in my clothes at 40 that I could fit in at 20. Fashion comes and goes. 20 years from now, whatever we are wearing today, I will still be wearing this. (laughs) Whatever we are wearing today will seem just as out of fashion 20 years from now as whatever it was you were 20 years ago would seem today. That's just how fashion works. Utterly, shockingly arbitrary. However, there are certain things that can never go out of style, like this. (laughs) Because they were never in style, but that's that's another issue. Totally separate, utterly irrelevant. But when you put on the robe of God's righteousness, you'll never take it off. God's fashion lasts for eternity forever, literally forever. He, he clothes you in garments of salvation. When, when, you, when you, in God's grace, have a heart open to receive Jesus, He clothes you in garments that you will wear for the remainder of your life and into eternity when you will finally, in a sense, see them. Because it's, it's, it's metaphorical. Remember when, when the martyrs in Revelation, they're, they're, they're told to wait a little longer and, and they're clothed in, in garments of white linen, which are their righteous acts. And so there is fashion in heaven. Gloriously, the tailor 
is the king. He, he works your garments for you. He makes them just exactly right to fit. It's his own righteousness. He takes salvation and he drapes it on your body, covering you. He, he takes away your, your nakedness and guilt and shame. He, he, takes, he takes his robe of righteousness and he gives it to you. And you never have to hang it up in your closet. You never have to wash it. It can't be soiled. It can't wear out. It can't be improved on. He has arrayed me in a robe of His righteousness. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the Sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is an amazing verse. This is the kind of verse you're, you're happy. You're happy that it's August 4th and beautiful to read a verse like this. Uh, yes, yes, yes. In, in, in the winter, when it's Klondike cold, you can, you can fondly think of these sorts of things. But it's nice when you can have sort of the lived experience right now. There are, there are a lot of things that are right now in full flower. Uh, there are a lot of vegetables and a lot of gardens that, that right now are, are ready to harvest, ready to eat, soon will be overripe and rotting if they're not consumed very quickly. And, you know, it would be a beautiful thing. You, you go and you, you, you tour people's gardens, and they point at all the various things that they're growing. You know, these are my whatever you want to grow, tomatoes or, or leeks. Everyone loves a good leek, you know. <laughs> or artichokes, or whatever it is. Well, what is, God, what is God growing in His garden? Righteousness. What is He causing to grow up? Praise. God, God puts His arm around you now that you're, you're clothed in His royal robes, and He says, Let, let's go see the royal gardens. Over there, you see that? That's that's the righteousness that, that, that's growing up in Russia right now. See, it was, because all of the world is God's garden. Well, you see over here, this is, you see, this is, this is the praise that I'm just causing to grow up in Africa right now. It's an amazing thing. All over the world, God is in His garden, is growing righteousness and praise. This, of course, is the fulfillment of a whole fruitfulness motif that runs from the Garden of Eden all the way through the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. But it has a very interesting stop in Galatians 5, 23 through 23, which is the fruit of the Spirit. What, what is God producing? What fruit is He producing? Well, you're not surprised that it's love and joy and peace because you read this text. It's exactly what God's making. He's exchanging all the negative things for all of those positive things. That's what he's producing. The Spirit is, is at work in your heart. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your heart is the garden of God that he is working in to produce his fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what this means is that fecundity in nature, fruitfulness in nature, is a pointer to spiritual reality as well. So all, all the fruitfulness and the fecundity of, 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 of the soil is a pointer to the spiritual reality that God is growing spiritual fruit in this world. And how can He do that? How can God come into a broken, horribly mangled world and produce all these things? 
It's because of the Spirit who anoints the servant of the Lord. It's because of what the servant of the Lord himself has done, atoning sacrifice, Isaiah 52 and 53. And this is why Jesus in Luke 4 will read Isaiah 61, but he stops after saying to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Interestingly enough. Then he goes on to talk about Gentile inclusion. The Jews in the synagogue where he reads this text would have, would have interpreted the year of the Lord's favor, meaning two Jews, and a day of vengeance of our God, meaning two Gentiles. So Jesus will not foster that kind of misunderstanding. He, he stops at the year of the Lord's favor, doesn't read the next bit, and then goes on to teach the people about how there were many in Israel who were rejected when God sent his prophets to the Gentiles to proclaim the good news to the marginalized. Jesus can apply this text to himself precisely because he is the servant who provides atonement for sin. And this morning when we celebrate communion, when we observe communion together, this is a reminder to us, how is it that you can be so blessed by God? How is it that you can have you know, mourning, mourning or joy for mourning and, and beauty for, for ashes, praise for despair? It's because Jesus was willing to exchange in reverse. He was willing to trade his glory for shame. He was willing to exchange praise for mockery. He was willing to exchange life for death. He died in our place so that we could inherit his robe of righteousness, so we could inherit a double portion of the inheritance of God, so that we could be made righteous and we could praise him forever. And may he help us to do so. May God help us to recognize the blessings he gives us the free exchange for us because of the suffering of the servant of the Lord. I'm going to say maybe we can take a moment just in, in silent reflection to pray in prayer, to, to come before God, to ask Him to prepare you for these things. Uh, those who are going to help distribute the elements, I'll invite forward at this time. And after a few moments, I'll lead us together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son, who was anointed by your Spirit, to proclaim good news to the poor and release for captives, to bring prisoners out of darkness. We thank you that there can be, for us, beauty, a crown of beauty instead of the ashes of mourning and sorrow, everlasting joy for temporary mourning and shame. Despair and discouragement finally done away with, and a spirit of praise put in its place. 
everlasting blessings, being oaks of righteousness, priests in your kingdom, rebuilding the city, and all these things and more are ours because your Son, the servant, our Lord and Savior and King, was willing to suffer and die in our place. Make us truly mindful and aware and appreciative of these realities. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.